G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. I'd like to begin though today uh, by shining the spotlight on an area of Christian culture, you know, modern church culture, that generates a fair bit of uh, anxiety amongst us Christians and may I say, perhaps rightly so. Um, to do that, please join me back in the earliest days of the Christian church, um, back before this letter was even written, in the New Testament days, uh, when the message of Jesus, it sounded so very fresh, it sounded so very radical, it sounded so very wonderful to the people who were first hearing it um, back in those early days and it turned their lives upside down. Have a look with me in in Acts chapter 4 and we read just some of the effect that the gospel was having on those early believers. Acts chapter 4 verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And I wonder if you can remember the very... I know it's in the next chapter in our Bibles, it just flows on in the way that Luke wrote it, uh, the book of Acts, uh, but I wonder if you remember the very next episode, which is kind of the cautionary tale with all of this sharing of possessions, Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property... With his wife's full knowledge, he, Ananias, kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest to put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You haven't lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they'll carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Back in a time when it was so radical, so wonderful, so amazing and so dramatically changed the lives of these people that they'd share even their possessions. 
Yes, there's an acknowledgement here of private property. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? These, these, these weren't communists uh, by any means. They owned the field and the money. That wasn't their problem. And yet, as we look at their standards of generosity in that early church environment, when the gospel was first taking hold of their lives, as we look at the standards of generosity that gripped them as a people, and then we look at our own standards of generosity, doesn't it make you wonder? Doesn't it make you look around at ourselves? Has the modern church, has our little church lost touch with what an authentic response to the news of the gospel looks like? I mean, they were radical, they were putting it into practice, weren't they? Specifically, has the modern church, has our church lost an authentic uh, response to the news of the gospel as it affects our wallets. Do you see the conundrum? I wonder if you've ever wondered that before. I sure have when reading through Acts 4 and 5 there. Richard Hayes, a, uh, an ethicist, a Christian ethicist, uh, he puts it like this. He says, you know, we modern Christians, we read this stuff, we ought to be asking ourselves, here's his question, how can we order our economic practices in the church in such a way that we give testimony with power to the resurrection of Jesus? It's a good question, isn't it? To ask that question in a serious and sustained way will require of us not only imaginative reflection, but also costly change. No matter how much squirming we may do, it is impossible to escape the implication of the New Testament's address to us, imaginative obedience to God will require of us a sharing of possessions far more radical than the church has ordinarily supposed. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome this morning to a series not in the book of Acts, that was just uh, by way of introduction, we're very much in the book of James from here. James, I want to say, it's a book, you probably noticed it on the way through, it runs pretty lean, um, on doctrine, on, you know, on theory, on the theology of the Lord and, and, and God and, and, and the roots of our faith. But James, I'm very glad to say, though it runs lean on doctrine, it runs rich, rich on the practice. He has crammed his letter to the churches full of the fruit. It may be lean on the roots, but it is very full of the fruit of the gospel. Um, James desires your maturity in Christ, Christian. Nothing short of your perfection, sister, nothing short of you, uh, your, your complete integrity, brother. So, I think it's an exciting series for us to be in. You might be a Christian up here, but are you out there in the world? You might be a Christian up here, but are you with these or with this, which is what we're looking at today? Um, are you a Christian in here? Whenever faith does not issue in love, and dogma, however orthodox, is unrelated to life, whenever Christians attempted to settle down to a self-centred religion and become oblivious to social and material needs of others, or whenever they deny by their manner of living the creed they profess and seem more anxious to be friends of the world than friends of God, then the epistle of James has something to say to them, which they reject at their peril. Uh, let's pray as we come to, come to James... And for this morning, this particular topic of uh, how we put together belief and the bottom line, wealth and poverty. Let's pray. Our great Father God in heaven, uh, we believe and we confess that you are God. 
that you never change. You haven't learned new things as if you were ignorant of them before. You haven't matured as if you needed eternity past somehow to school you. No, the God served by those Christians in Acts 4 is the same God who we serve today. Father, that is a joy to us. It is a comfort to us to know you as the eternal God because it means that your gospel word to us is as good now as it was then. But Father, it is also an arresting thought to us because when we look at the radical devotion of these first disciples, we wonder how ours measures up. You haven't changed. Lord, this month, would you please rejuvenate for us the connection between faith and life as your word comes to us in the book of James and specifically, would you grant us imagination and courage to confront matters of wealth and poverty today in a way that bears testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and we ask it in his name. Amen. Uh, So this morning we're going to build a picture of um, Christian integrity in this sphere of wealth and poverty from the book of James. Now if if it's helpful for you to have a a sense of where I'm going overall um, from the beginning, let me give it to you now, here it is, a Christian is a person who has learned from God himself to count worldly wealth far less valuable than what he or she has in Christ. Ah, Hans has put it up there, a Christian, yeah that's what I'm saying this morning, A Christian is a person who has learned from God himself to count worldly wealth far less valuable than what he or she, what you have in Christ and that is going to reshape not just what we do with our money, it's going to reshape how we view one another, it's going to change how we view ourselves, Um, it's going to change how we handle, I hope, times of plenty and poverty and you'll see that materialise as we go. Let's dive in firstly with an invitation to evaluate yourself, Christian. So turn with me to James chapter 1, if you're following along on your lap there, James chapter 1, I'm going to pick it up from verse 9. And the question that I want you to ask of yourself at the moment is, are your circumstances humble circumstances at the moment? Or actually pretty well off? Are you humble or high? Are you uh, wealthy or poor? Let's have a look here, James chapter 1 and verse 9. The brother or sister, the brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises uh, with scorching heat and withers the plant its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised those who love him. A little word of warning um, as we're reading through James over these weeks, like especially if you're used to reading Peter or Paul, you know Peter, you know, say take Paul's letters for example um, in Ephesians or whatever, Um, did you notice unlike Paul, James weaves his doctrine in amongst his instruction, he sews his doctrine into the fabric of his um, teaching, so unlike Paul, Paul has like this is what we believe and so this is how you've got to live, So Ephesians 1 to 3, this is what we believe as fellow Christians 
Ephesians chapters 4 to 6, so this is what you've got to go and do. James is not like that, as we're going to see. And so, uh, in this case, why, for instance, why do the poor have anything worth boasting about? Well, because, verse 9, the poor Christian has a high position, and what does that mean? Well, it's just sort of woven into the fabric of it, isn't it? Verse 12, because though he be poor now, verse 12, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. The ideas woven through the instruction, the doctrine woven into the directives. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, which were you? Are you in humble circumstances at the moment or in kind of high and wealthy circumstances? Which were you when I asked just a moment ago? Humble or high? Poor or wealthy? Did your thought process go something like this? Well, on the one hand, I can certainly think of people who are better off than me. I can certainly think of people who are more wealthy, who are doing better in life, who have more disposable income, who travel further and fly higher and all that sort of thing. But on the other hand, goodness, how can I say that I'm poor? How can I say, I mean, look around the world, how can I possibly say that I'm poor? Can you relate at all to that little mental process that we do, seesawing between the two? Brothers and sisters, in these verses, isn't James saying, that's exactly the problem? Don't look around the world. That is not to be your source of reference. Stop comparing yourself at all. The whole rich-poor conundrum, it's broken and we shouldn't buy into it precisely because worldly wealth does not, cannot, must never define your value or hold your heart. Isn't that what he's saying in these verses? If you are practically poor, like, you know, monetarily poor, then take pride in where you stand before God, Christian. And Christian, if you happen to be wealthy, then get used to making a bigger deal of Jesus than you do of your wealth and your money, because, by the way, that's going to look pretty silly pretty soon, sooner than you think. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he'll pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat, withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away, even while he goes about his business. So just take a moment here. At bottom, do you honestly measure your life by your wealth? Do you feel... So this isn't just about thinking, is it? It's about pride, or I guess the flip side is shame. Um, Do you feel pride because you're better than them? Oh, but you're poorer than them and you hope that they don't notice and you hope that they don't point it out and you hope that no one else makes that comparison. Your significance before God, Christian, is not based on the wealth that you can amass in life. It is not based on the wealth that you have amassed in your life. Your value in the world remains unchanged when you lose the whole lot. Your value in the world remains unchanged when you get a whole lot less of your super than you thought that you were going to get. Your value in the world is unchanged when the little FPOS thing says insufficient funds, unchanged. Your value in the world is unchanged when she has a nicer home or he has a frankly way better car 
when they seem to go further and fly higher and travel farther afield. So where, Christian, do you find your value? I think it's there in a single word, actually, in verse 12. I'll give you the word. Promise. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. I am a person, we need to get used to telling ourselves this, you are a person who God has taken hold of, he has made a promise to. Long after her house has crumbled to the ground, long after his car has been stripped for parts and rusted to the ground, God has promised me, God has promised you a crown of life and if God has said it to you, then you must be something in his eyes. Now, can we now tease this out, this sense of value and where we find our value and what really matters in life, can we now tease this out, not just for ourselves, but with one another? So, pop over with me to chapter 2, chapter 2, as we look at wealth, poverty and valuing others, chapter 2, verse 1, come with me there, please. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favouritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world? to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? What's he saying here? He's saying, isn't he, fawning after riches and rich people It's kind of a couple of things, actually. Fawning after riches and rich people, not only does it reveal that you, frankly, you value cash and clothes and cred ahead of God's choice and God's promises and God's kingdom. Yeah, it it shows that, but it says something else as well. Fawning after riches and rich people, it also reveals how hopelessly forgetful we are. Did you catch that in that second little bit there? Um, it, it, tally up the times he is saying that the poor have taken you for a ride. Tally up the times that the poor have kept you awake at night with worry and troubles because of their grumbling. Tally up the times uh, that they've caused headaches for you in work and in life, in church, heaven forbid, even in the way that they criticise our very God and bring us trouble and anxieties and griefs through the rest of life. And yet the picture he paints, it is so recognisable, isn't it? Of the brother, um, the, is, my brother as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favouritism, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. You know, the suave, not sleazy, but the suave young man, that stunning young woman with connections and with money, who travels who seems to be able to line up jobs for her friends, for his friends. People who hang with him seem to go places. She has rich parents. 
He dresses so well. Uh, uh, people pay attention when she speaks. You know, no one wants to disagree with her. You just wouldn't want to because of fear that you'd be on the outer, that you'd seem out of touch. These well-groomed, well-spoken of, well-off. And then there's the poor guy. Did you see the poor guy at church last week? No, neither did anyone else. The poor, we, we've got no fear of speaking down to them. We just humour their requests, which we'll get around to when it suits us. We put limits on what they can expect from us and we make sure that they know those limits and what they are. We wouldn't dream of putting those limits on a, a wealthy person. We wait for someone else to look after them because we're far too busy to attend to someone like that. Can you hear the, the value judgments that we make? Such a believable scenario that James paints for us here. Listen, my dear brothers, hasn't God chosen, verse 5, hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who love Him? Folks, wouldn't it be great if money never bought influence in our church? Wouldn't that be excellent if money and wealth never bought influence, never bought attention, never bought your way, if decisions and direction were evaluated on merit and with togetherness, spanning whether we're wealthy or not. May I say, I think those among us who labour with refugees, you are doing us, you are showing us this in action as you do that. Um, you help us to see this in action, a valuing not of wealth and money and influence, uh, but values that really matter. May I gently say, uh, may I say, uh, those who visit the elderly and the weak, those in homes who can't make it to church, whose best years, so to speak, are behind them, I reckon, well done, good and faithful servant. You are an example to us of values that matter and that run against the grain. But may I gently prod at something though, it's an area where I think churches do tend to struggle and I don't think we are immune to it by any stretch. I think churches and I think ministries tend to let the rich, by which I mean the generous, like, you know, it's a church of the, the generous wealthy. I think churches and ministries tend to let the wealthy have their way because we're afraid of gently but firmly letting ministry set the agenda and not means. Now, let me give an example um, of this super quick example, which is only half real. I've had to doctor it to make it seem a little bit worse. But anyway, so at last term at youth night, um, a very generous person came to me. I'm not going to say who it was. A very generous person came to me um, knowing that the end of term was coming up and said, pizzas, <laughs> we'll all have pizzas. I will shout youth night pizzas, you can all have pizzas on the last night of term, everyone can have it, it'll be a fun night, I'll pay for it, done, that's what we'll do. Can you see, I've got a decision, as the, I run the youth night, I've got a decision to make there, don't I? Do I go with it? Do I let the generosity kind of dictate what happens at youth night on that particular evening, whether or not I had ministry plans for it? Or do I have a frankly awkward conversation Awkward because that person's been really generous. I mean, when is the last time that you tried to feed 13, 14, 15 teenagers? Those guys have hollow legs with pizza. I mean, this is a generous offer, can you see? I mean, this kind of awkward situation. 
Now, for the record, right, I need to say this. For the, it, most of you, I hope, don't know who the person is, but that particular donor was just beautifully humble about it, like spectacular. Um, in fact, I think they even said, um, is that what you want to do or do you want to do something different? Um, because that would be okay. You know, like they kind of, they had all of that in there, so that's brilliant. Um, uh, let's be a church community that bends even our generosity to ministry rather than letting wealth, even generous wealth, kind of dictate the direction and where we want to go. Do you see what I mean? So to the generous person, I'd want to say, please ask that ministry leader, frame it as a question. Would you like this? Would this be a help? Can this help the ministry go well? Don't let me force your hand. But for the timid ministry leader, it's easy for me, I'm the pastor, right? But for the timid ministry leader, please don't assume that the generous person is trying to foist anything on you. They probably appreciate the conversation of, of where you want to take your ministry. Let your starting point be this, wealthy or not, here is a brother in the Lord, here is a sister in the Lord, we value people, we together value people ahead of money, we value the Lord's work ahead of uh, uh, crash or cred, so let's talk about this, brother, sister, humble, generous, let's work on this together. Do you see what I mean? Let's be a church like that. Thirdly, lastly, I've rabbited on with that second point a little bit, Thirdly, lastly, wealth, poverty and where we're headed. Please come with me to James 4, James 4, um, because it puts this whole wealth thing in a much bigger frame. James 4, he talks about three groups here. Um, The first group we've just met, the wealthy Christians, the wealthy brother or sister. The second group, weirdly for a New Testament letter, I think is non-Christian wealthy people. We're going to see them at the start of chapter 5 and then we're back with poorer Christians. Um, But the lesson is all the same. If we value the Lord above everything else, then wealth is never going to control you. James chapter 4, verse 13, just the last paragraph in chapter 4. Now, listen, you who say... Today or tomorrow, we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we'll live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and you brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. I think um, Doug Moo has a very canny little insight here that I'd like to share with you, just on that, if the Lord wills phrase. So he says this, he says, "If, if the Lord wills can become nothing more than a glib formula without any real meaning. James, rather, He wants us to adopt an attitude expressed by the words as a fixed perspective from which to view all of life. If the Lord wills. Let's read on. The the non-Christian rich now, perhaps the landowners, perhaps the farm owners who are employing these poor Christians. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 1, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, 
The wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. And then he turns lastly to the, the powerless Christians who have just kind of got to watch, don't they? As the big wheels of the world turn and sometimes crush them. Lastly, to these poor Christians, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains? You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Christian, this morning, when your mind turns to money... Is it the thing by which your life rises and falls? Have you lost touch, perhaps, with the reality that someday it's all going to be gone? It's all going to belong to another. You can't take any of it, any of it with you. And I say that as much to the person who is struggling as the person whose cup runneth over. The crop that matters isn't your mortgage. The crop that matters, it isn't your super. The crop that matters isn't your business. The crop that does matter, that lasts, that will come is the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he brings for us with him. Are you living for that? Do you value that? Are you looking for that? Would anyone know it by looking at your life? and seeing not just the roots of your convictions, but the fruit of them in your life. Uh, I began with a a little quote from Richard Hayes, didn't I? Let me finish with him as well. Um, He suspects that we're not there yet. The entire Western church, as he reads it and as he reads his New Testament, he says, I just don't think we're there yet. I don't think we've figured out how to do this wealth, how to do this possessions um, stuff in a way that um, quite bears witness to the gospel that we have. And here is, here is him being quite honest about his own situation, and I'll finish with this. He says, as a tenured professor in a major US university, I live a life of comfortable affluence and relative economic security. I participate in a church and support it financially, contribute money to good causes and do the occasional service stint in a homeless shelter, but let there be no mistake... Such modest forms of economic discipleship fall far short of the New Testament vision. And most of the churches that I've known have been formed by the forces of market capitalism at least as much as by the teaching of Jesus. I remain among the wealthy of the world and the churches in which I've participated for the last 20 years have made only fitful and tepid attempts to respond to the New Testament's imperatives concerning the sharing of possessions. Plenty more food for thought there. Can we pray? Our Father God in heaven, you have given us our very lives as well as everything in them. There is nothing that we have that didn't come from you. You've given our lives significance and direction and a sense of fulfilment, at least in part. 
Yet, Father, we confess that too often, with wealth and with credibility on our hearts and minds, we try to spend these short years that we have living for ourselves. Would you please continue to transform us into people who prize the promises of God, who, uh, who love you ahead of the precious things of this world? And so, Father, may we learn to share and may we learn to give and may we find joy in doing so. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.